to be back. As you know, the last couple of weeks I had a chance to kind of take a break during our missions conference, and just so that you know, I wasn't home not doing anything. We had some high-level executive meetings, and we were looking at the format of our class and what we came up with. Um, I think all of you will like the new format for the next coming months will be more music, less Larry. So that's a... Uh, <laughs> Oh, well, a couple of people don't like the idea, but, but I think the majority of you do seem to like it, so we'll just go ahead and run with that. Seriously, I want to welcome all of you to the first session in a series of messages that will focus our attention on something that I believe we all need a little bit more of in life, and that's a little more joy. You know, this series will be about relaxing a little bit more, maybe loosening your tie and unbuttoning your top button about refusing to let your circumstances uh, dominate your attitudes. It'll be about looking at life from a perspective other than today's traffic report or the evening news. And I know that following our marriage series, it'll be a breath of fresh air for most of us. So, but I, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of living in a world of grim-faced people. I'm tired of looking at people who have frowns on their faces and anger in their hearts. You know, you get to a point where it just gets old after a while. My partner and I own a, a heating and air conditioning company, and we do a lot of work in different cities, and so we have the joy of, of dealing with our public servants in building departments. <laughs> and, um, you know, one, what's fascinating, we just said we have a project that we're working on now, and we're going through the building department and trying to get a couple of things taken care of, and uh, the one guy that we met on the counter said, man, there's so much tension around here. He goes, I'm always looking over my shoulder. I'm waiting for someone to go postal on us. You know, I mean, can you imagine living in a world where we've coined phrases like, I'm waiting for someone to go postal? You know, it's just amazing to me. Call me crazy, I don't know, but you know what? I think it's time that we all smile a little bit more again. And so that's what I want to focus on. It's time to smile again. Now, that assumes that you've smiled at some point in the past. Um, you know, some of you, you're going to have to dig deep to remember when that was. But, uh, you know, I think it's time that we do it. Seriously, I mean, look around. I mean, when was the last time that you saw someone smiling? Now, the last time that I saw someone smiling, now, this is to show the impact that this young man made on my life. 30 years ago on a baseball team I played on, we had a guy on our team who smiled all the time. We all thought he was psycho. <laughs> Seriously, when you see someone smiling, you either think they're nuts or what? Or they were just talking about you when you walked into the room. <laughs> I mean, there's something up, man. When someone's smiling, something's got to be up. And then it's like, oh, what, what, what? Nothing, that's all right. What, what, what? No, tell me. No, you know, it's like, we, I, we're all wound a little bit too tight. I like the, what I read recently, and I thought I'd share it with you. It's a testimony of an anonymous friar in a Nebraska monastery. He wrote this letter later in his life, and what I like about it, it's not your typical, quote, religious testimony, but he has some things that I think are worth listening to. He said this, if I had my life to live all over again, I'd try to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax, I'd limber up, I'd be sillier than I've been on this trip. I know very few things I'd take seriously. I would take more trips, I would be crazier. I would climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. I would do more walking and looking. I would eat more ice cream and eat less beans. There's some counsel there, I'm telling you right now. I would have more actual troubles and fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who lives life sensibly hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments, and if I had to do over again, I'd have several more of them. It says, in fact, I tried to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those people who never go anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a gargle, a raincoat, an aspirin, and a parachute said, if I had to do it over again, I'd go places, do things, travel lighter than I've ever have in my life. If I had my life to live over, I'd start barefooted earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. said, I'd play more hooky. I wouldn't make such good grades except by accident. And every young person here is going, now I'm listening. I'd ride on more merry-go-rounds. I'd pick more daisies. You know, I like that because he's not advocating a life of irresponsibility and any of you who know me know that I wouldn't do the same thing but one thing that I like about what he's saying is this and that is that there's nothing better or more powerful than a joyful attitude when we face the challenges that life throws at us there's nothing more powerful than a joyful attitude when we experience the things that we're going to experience in this lifetime 
I like what Mother Teresa had to say once when asked what the job description was for anyone who wanted to join her on our mission trips to work in these grimy streets in the narrow, narrow alleys of Calcutta. And this is what she said. She said it only required two things, the desire to work hard and a joyful attitude. Both of them are in short supply, what I'm finding in our culture today. There aren't very many people who want to work hard, but I'll tell you this, there's still more people who will work hard than there are people who have a joyful attitude in life. And I think it's interesting because unfortunately our country seems to have lost its spirit of fun and laughter. You know, we must all be politically correct, whatever in the world that is, or we risk offending someone or some group regardless of how obscure that group may be. And we're getting to the point where we can't laugh anymore at things that are funny. I'll give you an example. Now, you can determine whether this is funny or not. But I had a guy come up to me when I was doing the marriage series and said, hey, i got a great joke for you to use during your marriage series. I said, all right, what is it? And he tells me the story. He says, there's three men who are the finalists for a position in the FBI. They've been wanting to be FBI officers all of their life. They got it down. They've whittled it down from thousands to the final three. And so the director of the FBI calls each one of the applicants and says, what I want you to do is come in for one final interview, but you need to bring your wife in you, with you because it's, a, it's kind of a, a process that we go through, bring a husband and wife together for the final interview. Okay, great. So these three men come in, and they're all trying to get this last position. And the first one goes into the director's offices, and he says, you know, uh, boy, I want to be an FBI agent more than anything in life. He said, good, I'm glad that you said that because this is the situation. You see this pistol sitting on our desk, my desk right here? I want you to take this pistol, go into the other room, and I want to shoot and kill your wife because there's nobody that's going to come before you and the FBI, not even your family or your wife. He goes, oh, man, I can't do that. He goes, I, just, I want to be an FBI agent, but I can't. I love my wife. There's no way I'd ever kill her. He said, oh, I'm sorry, then I'm going to have to dismiss you. So he leaves. The second one comes in. He tells him the same thing. He says, that pistol right there, take it and shoot your wife. He said, I can't do that. I love my wife. He said, well, I'm sorry, you're not FBI material. The third guy comes in, he tells him the same thing. The guy looks at the gun, and he says, okay, I'll be right back. The guy picks up the gun, he goes into the other room, shuts the door, all of a sudden you hear six shots ring out. Bang, 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 bang. There's a little bit of a pause, and all of a sudden there's stuff getting thrown around the room. The FBI director can hear from the other room, there's a big scuffle that breaks out. Next thing you know, he hears glass breaking. This man comes back in and it looks like he's been in a struggle and his clothes are ripped and he got a cut on his face and he says, man, why didn't you tell me that gun had blanks in it? <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I tried to choke her to death and when that didn't work, I finally had to throw out the window to kill her. <laughs> now see some of you sitting there going, that's not funny. <laughs> that's not funny. They're like, why isn't it funny? It's not, you know, because I know that domestic abuse isn't funny. I know the problems in marriage aren't funny. But when are we going to get to the point where we can laugh again at things that are supposed to be funny? See, we're getting so uptight. We're wound so tight. Here's another one I was given, not about marriage, but about people that are getting older. This guy goes golfing one day. And he goes up to the first, oh, no, we're hitting close to home. <laughs> the marriage one was funny, the guy says. But now, don't bring up golfing. I thought I was going to break from this marriage series stuff. Anyway, so a guy goes golfing, he goes over to the first tee, and there's an older gentleman standing there. He's 90-some years old, and he comes over and says, would you mind, I'd like to be your caddy, that's how I stay in shape. The golfer looks at him and says, you're 92 years old, and you want a caddy for me? He said, well, yeah, what's the problem with that? He goes, well, I don't know, how's your eyesight? The old man says, well, you see that billboard over there? And he points to a sign two miles away. And the guy goes, yeah, I see it. He starts reading to him the fine print. He goes, my eyesight's great. It's never been better. He goes, great, well, then you can caddy for me. So he goes up the first tee, hits his ball. They're walking down, chit-chatting together. He says, do you see where my ball went? Yeah, no problem. He points up, and they walk together. They're walking, walking, walking. They finally get around the area, and the guy goes to his caddy. He says, where's my ball? The old man says, what ball? <laughs> see, you know, well, some things you have to understand, too. You have to be awake for it. But see, it's like, well, that's not funny. It's not funny getting old. It's not funny when you start forgetting stuff. Well, gee, you know what? Let's loosen up a little bit here. Man, just look around. Everywhere you turn, you see people with long faces. You know, it's like, well, give me, I'll give you the last story because Tom made a comment about me during the missions conference. The guy said something about how would you like Chuck to go far away to some foreign mission field, and he said one of those patented amens. And so I started doing a little research and digging. You know, Tom was a Marine. Amen. You better be quiet because this is coming right at you now. Here we go. He says, you know, he used to be a Marine. He used to be a hard-drinking guy, hard-drinking, walking, talking kind of a guy. 
And he used to go into a bar, and whenever he'd go into a bar, he'd order three drinks. The bartender said, what are you doing with ordering three drinks? He said, because i got two brothers. We've made an agreement. No matter where we are in the world, whenever we drink, we drink with one another. So set him up. Three drinks sets him up. He comes in for several months and does this. Finally, one week he comes in and he says, set him up, but I only want two drinks. And the guy goes, the bartender says, man, I'm sorry. What happened? Something happened to one of your brothers? Tom says, oh, no, no, no. I promised my wife I'd quit drinking. Hey, now you're getting the attitude now. We're getting a spirit. We're catching on now. But, you know, I mean, think about the world that we live in. Everywhere that you turn, people have long faces. People are disgusted. They're discouraged. And what's even more amazing is you come to church, you see the same thing reflected on the faces of the people. You know, and it's like, you know, much of today's popular music, and, it, and, and you know, you think about it as a voice of a nation's conscience, it promotes misery and sorrow, despair, sex and violence are the themes of most movies, and if they're not, some form of unhappiness is. Think about this for a moment. A motion picture that's up for a, a number of awards is a, a motion picture called Leaving Las Vegas. What is the movie about? It's about a, an, a suicidal alcoholic who hooks up with a prostitute. And both of them are so disgusted with life, they can't wait till it's over. And this is up for best picture. This is what we call entertainment. It wasn't done as a documentary. It's done as entertainment. And this is what we're, that we're getting bombarded with everywhere that we turn. Newspapers. Man, you don't even want to pick up a newspaper. They thrive on tragedy and calamities. They thrive on lost jobs and downsizing of corporations and bold headlines of 45,000 people, 18 and 2, are going to lose their job. Uh, all the stock market crashes and burns, and we turn on and we listen to the weather, and we hear what? It's going to be 80%, what, 20% chance of showers. It's never 80% chance of a nice sunny day. My grandmother's here from Pennsylvania, right? She watches the news. She can't believe it. They got this Stormwatch 96. L.A., we got Stormwatch 96. She's all glued to the tube, you know. She's ready to get out of you know, emergency evacuation e equipment and kits. You got those two gallons of water somewhere, the flashlight, the hard hat. Why? There's a storm coming. Say, so you don't understand. This is L.A. So we watch Stormwatch 96. What do we get? A quarter inch of rain. Stormwatch. She's all concerned. She starts laughing. Why? Because she sees things from a different perspective. She's coming from Pennsylvania. They have the worst winter in 50 years on the East Coast. They got 9 billion gazillion inches of snow. So she knows what a storm's all about. Stormwatch 96. It's amazing to me. But that's the world we live in. And you know what's bad enough? That's the perspective of most people. And for the most part, you can't even blame them because most people don't have any hope. They don't understand God's in control. They don't understand God's got a purpose and a plan to everything in life. They don't know who he is. They don't know anything that's going on. They think they're on their own. Man, there's not a whole lot of hope in that. But what is amazing and inexcusable is that this long-faced, heavy-hearted attitude has now invaded the ranks of Christianity. You visit most churches or congregations today, and you search for signs of happiness. You try to search for sounds of laughter, and you'll come away often disappointed. There's something wrong. Where's our smiles? Where's our joy? I, you know, it's amazing. You stand and watch people sing. You, I mean, you, you got to come up here and watch it. This is unbelievable. The people who are lead to singing. I mean, isn't it an amazing thing, Ginger, when you look out and you see people's faces? Here's what you have. You have stuff like this. I've got joy, joy, and more joy. Down in my heart, down in my heart, I got joy, 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 joy. I got that joy of the Lord in my heart. Can we sit down now? You guys are amazing. I mean, they clap your hands. It's like, now I don't know if it's no joy or just no anaerobic or aerobic workouts during the week, but it's like try to watch you try to clap your hands and sing at the same time. It's a scary thought. We're going to have one of those health fairs out in the back sometime, you know, get your blood pressure checked and your pulse rating and stuff. It's like, I got joy, joy. Yeah, you got some joy. You know what? And the thing is, and you hate being around people that have joy. You don't want to smile, and you don't want to be around people that smile. I saw this cartoon. I kind of liked it. I like this one. I don't know if you can see it or not, but these people are sitting in church. And then I hate, I hate sitting behind the Johnsons. I hate it. People will be all smile on the back of their heads, you know. It's like, hey, I hate it. That, 
now that's kind of cute, but I found one I even like better. I love this one. There's a pastor closing his message. He says, and until next Sunday, remember, God loves you, I love you, and, well, Brother Al here is still working on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's amazing to me. I mean, look around. It's like, yeah, man, yeah, oh, good to see you this morning. Hey, how you doing? Great to see you. Brother Al. Some of us are Brother Al's. You know, and it's funny. Now, I'm just kind of going to observe certain things. Now, if you get upset, well, too bad. But it's like, now, when did we start this whole thing in churches where you have to have people that are called greeters? When did that all get started? Think about this for a second. I don't know if you think about stuff like this, but it's like this. Let's see. You smile more than everybody else. Let me give you a name tag that says greeter. Then no one will think you're up to anything or psycho. And you greet people when they come in. Hi, nice to have you here. Hi, nice to have you here. Hi, nice to see you today. Hi, how you been? Hi, nice to see you. You see, it's like, see what we come up with? It's like, we, we got to have, when is it, now when did greeting become a spiritual gift? <laughs> I looked all through 1 Corinthians 12, man, I was checking it out. I want to dig into it because I didn't want to offend anybody and certainly not God. But the reality of it is, is I don't see greeting as a spiritual gift. But we have, we have got it down to just a handful of people who do it. Let me give you an illustration. Now, this isn't meant to offend or make anybody feel guilty, but there are people here who are visiting for the first time, and other than the person that invited you, did anybody else go up to you and say, hello, smile, shake your hand, and introduce themselves? Huh? Probably not. And the sad part of it is that most of us don't even introduce ourselves to one another. We got shepherd groups and stuff, and that's all good, but it's not supposed to be exclusive of one another. Take a couple minutes every now and then to meet somebody else that's here. It'd be a wonderful way to change our attitudes, how we greet one another. Greeting is not a spiritual gift. The pl one place on earth where life's burdens should be lighter, where people's faces should re reflect genuine enthusiasm, you would think would be in the church. There's something missing. And I'll tell you what it is. Here it is right here. That's a big old happy face. Now, I know that sounds corny and stupid, but man, I'll tell you what smiling once in a while will change your whole disposition. It'll change your whole attitude. And it'll change the way people in your life approach you. I got joy, joy in my heart. Stay away from me. I don't want what you got. I mean, please. You got sour pickle juice in your veins. This is unbelievable. We need to smile a little more often. You know, I know there are, I know there are people who come up to me and they will be the, the critics that say, but Chuck, we live in very serious times. Yeah, so what? And then they'll say, and you know what? And under these circumstances, how can I be joyful? And how can I smile? And I would say this. What are you doing under your circumstances? Isn't the Christian life supposed to be lived above our circumstances? What are we all doing under our circumstances? I'm not talking about denial or hiding our head about the realities that go on in life, but I'm talking about the fact that, you know what, we shouldn't be under our circumstances, we should be above them. And I think a good sense of humor will do a lot and go a, a long way in discerning what's to be taken serious and what we are to enjoy. You know, it's amazing, I like what Ogden Nash wrote, he believed this so strongly, he claimed that if German people had had a sense of humor... They would have never let Adolf Hitler deceive them. Instead, the first time they saw some fellow goose-stepping and raising a stiff arm to shout, Heil Hitler, they would have all killed over in laughter. Think about how stupid that looks. You look at those documentaries, and you got guys marching like this. Heil Hitler. Now, if that's not funny, I don't know what is. That's hilarious. My daughter, youngest daughter, our daughter had this cultural experience that we had to go to. We had to go eat at a restaurant that we've never eaten at before to experience a different culture. We ended up in Nebraska. No, no. <laughs> no just kidding. No, we, we did. We find a place close by. We find a place close by, and it's a German restaurant, and my, my wife's family is German. And it's kind of interesting because I always like to get on her because she doesn't quite have the same sense of humor that I do and some of our other children do. So it makes for some very interesting times around the ranch. But uh, anyway, so we go to this German restaurant to experience this cultural experience. And uh, the lady who waits on us, she got to be German. This lady not smiling. She's, not, she's just having a bad day. But then I remembered she's German. 
And she's having every day is like that. See, seriously, because my wife looked at me and said, she goes, see, now do you understand? <laughs> so it did help me to understand, but there was a sign above the door, I like it. It says, a grouchy German is a sauerkraut. <laughs> anyway, but you know, you think about it. <clears throat> People who live above their circumstances usually possess a, a good sense of humor. You know, because in the final analysis, that's what will get you through life. You got to find something to smile about. You got to find something to laugh about. You know, I love this. I like this woman who writes to a pastor. He, has, he was speaking at a conference. This is what she writes. She says, humor has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life. How could I have reared 12 children starting at age 32 and not have had a sense of humor? says, after your talk last night, I was enjoying some relaxed moments with friends I met here. I told them I got married at 31. I didn't worry about getting married. I left my future in God's hands. But I must tell you, every night I hung a pair of men's pants on my bed and knelt down and prayed this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. So anyway, this pastor goes back to his church and he reads that letter to his congregation and he noticed that there's a couple of different reactions there. There's a father who is laughing all wholeheartedly and there's a, a teenage son who seems to be preoccupied by it. And apparently the mother wasn't there because one of the younger children were sick because a couple of weeks later she writes this letter to the pastor. She writes this, Dear pastor, I'm wondering if I should be worried about something that has to do with our son. For the last two weeks, I've noticed that before our son turns the light out and goes to sleep at night, he hangs a woman's bikini over the foot of his bed. She writes, should I be concerned about this? Obviously, he said, no, don't worry about it. And then he goes on to say later on that this young man ends up getting married, so he's thinking maybe the bikini thing worked. But, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that will steal the joy out of our life. How many of you have ever been involved or are currently involved in the if only club the if only club goes like this if only I had more money then I'd be happy if only I had more talent then I could smile if only I had you know a better marriage then if only I had better kids then if only I had this then if only our church was this then if only our nation was this then there's always something that's con a condition for the joy in our life it's the if only club I like what Jane Canfield writes in one of her books. She says, The happiest people in life are rarely the richest or the most beautiful or even the most talented. Happy people don't depend on excitement and fun supplied by externals. They enjoy the fundamental, often very simple things of life. They waste no time thinking other pastures are greener. They don't yearn for yesterday or tomorrow. They savor the moment, glad to be alive, enjoying their work, enjoying their families, the good things that are around them. They are adaptable, they can bend with the wind, adjust to the changes in their times, enjoy the contests of life, and feel themselves in harmony with the world. Their eyes are turned outward, they are aware, they are, they are compassionate, and they have the capacity to love and the capacity to enjoy life. I like that. I like it. You know why? Because if you've got your Bibles, let me turn to Galatians chapter 5 and show you something that I think will be amazing to many of us. Galatians chapter 5. Here's how I remember that. When I first became a Christian, here's how it was taught to me. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. God eats peaches and cream. There you go. No, cream's bad for you. God eats peaches and cream. Philippians, or Galatians chapter 5. Look at this. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. It's an amazing truth, and it goes like this. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I warn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Saying there's a certain lifestyle that's evident of a person that doesn't have a relationship with God. He goes on, but he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Sin, the evidence is, is overwhelming. Those who have a wrong that, that don't have a relationship with God, evident, it's evident by the way that they live. Those who have a relationship with God, it should be evident by the, the way that we live our life. And part of that evidence is that we would have joy in our life. 
The word joy means a deep and abiding inner rejoicing which was promised to those who are in Christ. To those who have a relationship with God, God promises you that the fruit of that relationship will be evidenced by the joy in your life. And that joy is not predicated upon your circumstances or conditions. It goes beyond that. It's living above our circumstances. It says it doesn't depend on circumstances whatsoever because it rests in the fact that God is in control of all things. We'll talk more about that as we go through the series. See, because joy doesn't depend on circumstances. Let me give you an example of that. Here was a guy who became a Christian later in life. He was a religious leader, but he met Jesus Christ and he turned his life over to him and he believed that he was who he claimed to be and that was the Son of God sent to man to die for our sins. He believed that, and he smiled despite all the things that happened in his life. In spite of that, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28, we read what happened in this man's life. He's the Apostle Paul. He used to be Saul of Tarsus, but when he became a, a person who came into right relationship with God and he believed in Christ, his life was changed. And he says this, are they servants of Christ? He goes, I'm out of my mind to even talk like this. What he's saying was, you know what, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say here because I'm not bragging about how hard I work for God. That's not what I'm trying to get across here. He said, but you know what, if you think you're working hard, I'm working harder than you. And let me just demonstrate it by the things that have happened in my life. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one or 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city and in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have gone, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else that's going on in my life, I face the daily pressures of my concern for all those who are in the churches. He was having a pretty rough road. I don't know if you picked up on that. But we think we're having a bad day when we sleep in by 10 minutes. And that's enough to steal the joy right out of your heart. Here's a guy that was just getting beat up all the time. Everywhere that he turned, he was getting beat up and hammered. And he was having a rough go at it. You know what's amazing to me? And this is a little side note here, but I want to throw this out because there's nothing that will steal the joy out of the life of a Christian quicker than some idiot trying to tell you that you will not suffer in this lifetime if you really have faith in God. Excuse me, but that's one of the greatest joy stealers that's going around in our culture today. What are you trying to tell me? That the Apostle Paul didn't have any faith in God? It's interesting, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says even Jesus himself suffered, that he would give us an example, what? Of how to respond to our suffering. Jesus said, in this world we're going to have problems, we're going to have trouble, we're going to suffer. One of the greatest heresies and lies that is being promoted today are by people that are saying, you know what, if you're suffering in your life, there must be something wrong with your relationship with God, and if you don't have enough faith, then send in a couple of bucks to me, and I'll pray for you, and that's going to make all your life better. Well, gee, too bad they weren't around when Paul was going through all this, huh? I mean, it's crazy. We need to recognize the fact that it's not about whether we suffer or not. It's about how we respond to our suffering. It's not about whether you're persecuted for taking a stand for the fact that you put your faith and trust in God and Jesus Christ. It isn't about that. It's how you respond to what happens to you because you take the stand. We need to recognize that. Because your joy will be taken right out of your life if you don't understand that. The evidence of a right relationship with, with God is that we'll have joy in our hearts in spite of our circumstances. We don't live under our circumstances. We live above them. And we need to recognize that. You know, and as interesting as all this is, it even got worse for the Apostle Paul. Eventually, he was arrested, and he was put in prison, and he was chained to a Roman prisoner 24 hours a day. Could you imagine? They took it, and they had shifts. They would come in for so many hours at a time, and they would be chained to him. He was in a house arrest. He couldn't leave. He couldn't go about. And here's a guy that traveled all over the place. Can you imagine taking a person who loved to travel and then chaining them into a, into a room in a house to a prison guard and saying, this is where you're going to stay until we decide that you're going to go? It may take a little joy out of your life. But you know what's fascinating? It didn't take any of the joy out of Paul's life because this is where he wrote this letter that we're going to study. 
This letter of 104 verses that all throughout it, all it does is expand upon the fact that we can have joy in the midst of our circumstances. And how did he learn that? Because of the circumstances that he went through. He came to this conclusion and understood that, you know what? I can have joy in my life no matter what's going on in my life. But it's a matter of how I choose to respond to what's happening around me. Literally, this, less, this message that we're going to receive as we go through this study, as we go through the book, is simply this. Why even study this message? Why study this letter to the Philippians? I'll tell you one reason. And that's because we all need a joy infusion in our life. We all need to recognize that we should be living a life of evidence of a relationship with God and there should be joy that goes beyond our circumstances. We should have so much joy in our life that people around you look at you and think that you're psycho. They think that there's something up. They want to know what's going on. With all the stuff going on in the world, how can you smile and how can you have joy? I'll tell you how. But you have to come back next time. <laughs> Seriously, let me give you an overview of some of the things that we're going to go through. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians. And I'll give you a, a quick overview of some of the things that we're going to go through. Because, you know what, some of us, we need some, let me give you three reasons to smile this week, okay? Three reasons, and three alone. There's going to be many, many more, but you know what, these three, I don't want to overburden you. Give you too much work, it'll just be too hard. Three reasons, ready? Philippians 1, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see what he's saying? I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Let me give you three things that we can smile about this week. Some of us haven't had anything to smile about in a long time. And I think this will be a great start for all of us. The examples of joy in Philippians, number one. You know what? When Paul prayed for the Philippians, he smiled. When Paul prayed for them, he smiled. And do you know why he smiled? you know why it brought joy to his heart? Because he saw that God answers prayer. He saw the fact that these people got together and they formed a church and this little city was an answer to God's prayer, to, to prayer to God. It was an answer to prayer. God answers prayer and it should make all of us smile. I'm telling you, listen to me, I would not be standing here if I were not the result of God answering someone's prayer. I'm an answer to prayer. Now that sounds weird. It may not be your prayer, but it was someone's prayer. I'm an answer to prayer. And you know what's amazing? As he thought about all these people and the backgrounds that they had and where God had brought them from and what he had done in their life and how diverse this whole group was. And as he got together, they, had, they, 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 were, they were singing and praising God together and he was looking at how God changed lives. You know what? He can help it smile. I don't know if any of you have ever stopped and looked around here, but there's a lot of reasons to smile in this room. You look around, and I mean, if I'm an answer to prayer, you're an answer to prayer. Someone's prayer. God got a hold of you, and he changed your life, and he's doing something in your life. Man, I see marriages healed. I see businesses healed. I see people's lives changed. I see kids turning from drugs and stuff and, and heading in the right direction. And the sad thing is this is all scary to people because they don't really know what's going on, and they don't want to check it out and ask about it because they're afraid that they may have to ask some questions. It's kind of like, I know guys that, man, they're more concerned that their kids are going to church than they would be if they were out drinking and smoking and being stupid. It's scary. Why? Because they don't understand what's going on and what God's doing. But God's got a plan and a purpose for every person. And what he's doing is he's trying to get a hold of each one of us and say, hey, I got something better for you than the junk that this world has to offer. I can put joy into your life that you can live above your circumstances from now on. You can have joy and your joy will be fulfilled. He thought about these people and he smiled because he saw that God was at work in their life, changing lives for the better. And that's a great reason to smile. I don't know about you, but some of us are discouraged and depressed. And let me just tell you something. If you want a reason to smile this week, just think of the fact that, you know what? God is alive and he's active and he's changing hearts and he answers prayer and he loves people that you're praying for more than you'll ever know in your life. And that's a good reason to smile. Man, we need to recognize that and not lose sight of that. You know, people come here... And whether you understand this or not, the reason you're here is because someone was praying for you. And you being here is an answer to, to that prayer. And it makes people smile. You may not understand it. I remember the first people that brought us to Bible study and things of that nature, and we'd never been to one in our life, and I was real apprehensive, and I was a hard-nosed guy from Pennsylvania, and I was an athlete and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, man, and it was just like, it was so weird, man, to go to a Bible study and stuff. 
And I thought, oh, you know, these people aren't really like real people. They're not like, there's not real guys there. You know, they're all wussy, milk toasty people. You know, it's like, ah, this ain't going to work, you know. And, and then when and God changes someone's life, you know, and they smile and they, and they see what God's doing in your life and, and, and there's an answer to prayer there, man, I'll tell you what, we got all kinds of reasons to smile. Some of us aren't smiling because we're not praying for anybody. Some of us aren't smiling because we don't see God answering prayer. Some of us aren't smiling because, you know what, we're too busy looking at our circumstances instead of looking above them that God's in control. See, Paul didn't lose focus of that. Here's a man who's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. He's in prison. He can't travel and go. But you know what he says? Man, as I'm sitting here, and I don't have anywhere else to go, I'm just sitting here writing to you, and as I write to you, I'm smiling because I saw how God answered prayer. Man, that is some awesome stuff. Here's the second thing that he said. You want another reason to smile? This would probably be the best reason that I can think of to smile. But if you look at uh, Philippians 1, look at 21 through 25. <clears throat> Here's the same guy, right? And there he is. Well, actually, look at Philippians um, yeah, 21 through 25. Look, it says chapter 1. Here's the same guy. He's chained up. He's going to go on trial. There's a good chance he may even be executed. And he writes this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you for all your progress and the joy in the faith. Why else did he smile? I don't know if you ever thought about this, but we're in a no-lose situation. He smiled because he said, you know, if they kill me, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to be with Christ. If they don't kill me, they're going to leave me here and I'll be with you. I can't lose. This is a great position to be in. And he smiled about it. Some of us don't understand that heaven is real. Some of us don't understand because we're thinking, well, I hope I'm doing enough good stuff because then when I'm up there and I'm looking down, well, maybe. Some of us don't understand the reality of heaven. But Paul was totally convinced of it. I read a sad article in, a, in the Parade magazine a couple of weeks ago. There are people that are in our culture today, the so-called scientific intelligent community, who would have you to believe that heaven doesn't exist, that it's not real, that there's no such thing as life after death. And let me give you an example. Carl Sagan, Cornell University astronomer, wrote recently Parade Magazine as he was um, battling with cancer. He wrote these words. He said, I would love to believe that when I die, that I will live again. That some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I would want to believe that, and despite all the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that assert that there is an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. Man, that's tragic. That's sad. That's depressing. That's discouraging. Now I want you to contrast to a man who's chained up facing execution that says, you know what? I can't help but smile because if I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Some of us don't understand the reality of that. Look back at Luke chapter 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke chapter 11. I want to just clarify this as best I can. In Luke 11, look at verses 21 through 27. I say Luke 11? Is that what I said? Is anybody there? Good, because I'm looking at this going now. This doesn't look right to me. What was the question? Luke, what are we at? Luke 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What's, what's the account where um, Lazarus is raised from the dead? What? Luke 15? Well, then that's where we need to go. Oh, you know what? And, and don't be so confident when you give the wrong answer. That's not right either. John 11. That's what I'm thinking. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Never mind. Thank you. Thanks for the help, sir. All right, here we go. John 11. There we go. Okay, now, Lazarus is dead. Jesus comes. Martha says to him, You know what, Lord? If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. 
Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother's going to rise again. But Martha said, oh, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day, the, the last day. But Jesus said to her that I am the resurrection and I am the life and that he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her a simple question. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. Do you realize how simple this truth is? Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 6, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. He was about to be killed, and uh, he was telling his disciples, don't let it bother you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. But because it is and I go there, I prepare a place for you. And where I prepare a place for you, I'm coming back and you will be with me. And they said, well, where are you going? He said, hey, I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. Later on in the book to the Thessalonians, we're told this about the dead. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. The dead in Christ will rise first. We need to recognize how simple this truth is because there are many people in life who have no joy because they're trying to work their way to heaven, trying to please God in some way, and God says, you can't please me in any other way but this. And that was the question that Jesus asked Martha, and he said this, do you believe in me? Do you believe I'm it? Do you believe I'm the way? Do you believe I'm the truth? Do you believe I'm the life? Do you believe that only through me can you get into heaven? Do you believe that I died for your sins? Do you believe that I rose again from the dead? And if I did, that I'm, I've conquered death. I've conquered sin. Do you believe what I'm telling you? For it's by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift from God. So no one will ever brag in life or boast that they're in heaven because they worked their way there. You see, he smiled. He thought about heaven and he smiled. Why, man? I can tell you why. There's a whole bunch of good things to smile about. It's the best news in the world to realize if you put your faith and trust in Christ and believe Him entirely, that God guarantees you that when you die, that you will be in His presence. You don't have to go through, you know, you don't have to stop at go. You don't have to collect $200 or 2 million prayers by somebody who's still alive. You don't have to you do anything but believe in Him. What a wonderful message that is. You talk about putting joy in someone's heart and a smile on someone's face. It was the most freeing thing in the world when I realized, you know what? I don't have to go to church to get to heaven. I don't have to read my Bible to get to heaven. I don't have to give up drinking to get to heaven. I don't have to be nice to people I can't stand being around to get to heaven. All I have to do is believe that God did it all and just put my faith and trust in Christ. And he says, I'm born again, a child of God. All those cliche things that people don't like to hear because they don't understand it and because most of us mess it up when we try to explain it. But it simply means this you put your faith and trust in God he says that you're now a new creature you're a new person you're alive spiritually where you were dead before and if you're alive spiritually you go to heaven when you die amen and the case that's it and when he thought about that he smiled some of us need to think about it more often maybe we'll smile a little bit more man that's great news that's a freeing experience all you got to do is ask yourself the question have you believed that Jesus died for your sins do you believe that he died for you do you believe that he rose again from the dead to prove that he is who he claims to be? If you believe in him, the Bible says you become a new person. You become a child of God. You become alive spiritually. And you start seeing things from God's perspective. And you know what? When you see things from God's perspective, you can't help but smile. That's some awesome stuff. You know, I like what one guy said. He says, you know what? The atheist cannot find God for the same reason that a thief cannot find a policeman. Think about it. Isn't that true? The atheist cannot find God for the same reason that a thief cannot find a policeman. Because they're simply not looking. The evidence is overwhelming. What a wonderful truth. Last thing, we'll close on this. You want, a, you want another example of joy? When Paul encouraged unity, he smiled. When he encouraged their unity in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, we read the fact that he was praying for them and it made him smile when he thought about how united they were. United in purpose, united in thought, united in direction. Now, I know that, man, I could do a whole thing just on this because, you know, being involved in athletics, being around a lot of teams, I see the benefit of people who are working together to accomplish a common goal as they lay aside all of their personal goals and their personal desires and all the rest of it. Man, I see the benefit of that. And what Paul was saying was, he said, you know, as I thought about how diverse all these people were 
and I thought about how they were accomplishing a similar thing, I couldn't help but smile to see how God can take people who have their own agendas and their own direction and make them to the point where they want to lay those things aside to accomplish a common goal. One of the things I always love to do during chapels was one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 133. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is, man. And I'll tell you what, but unity will build people up, but disunity will destroy you quicker than anything. And it does take a genius to see it. We see it right now with the Lakers. Cedric Savalas, he's all upset. He's upset because he doesn't get enough playing time. Hey, you know what? When you play on a team, you sacrifice individual rights for the sake of the team. You've got to lay it aside. The acronym for team, T-E-A-M, I always told guys, I said, there's no I in team. There's no I in team. When you're part of a team, you lay aside all of your individual goals for the sake of accomplishing what's better for the team. Team, together, everyone accomplishes more. It's just the way that it is. You know what? When there's, when there's unity in a family, it'll make you smile. When there's unity on a team, it'll make you smile. When you see a bunch of kids, I look at Ryan's baseball team and guys that play, he plays ball with, and I look at how different they all are, but you know what? When they're united and they lay aside all those differences and they go out and they work together as a unit to accomplish a similar goal, you know what? It makes me smile. But disunity doesn't. It doesn't make anybody smile. Unity in a church makes people smile. Unity in a nation makes people smile. Unity in a family and in a business and on a team, it makes people smile. We need to recognize that, you know what? When God's involved and there's unity and direction, we need to smile and thank Him for it. There's three reasons to smile. But I want to warn you, in closing here, that every one of us individually have a choice. Whether you want to smile or not. Whether you want to smile today or whether you want to be a sauerkraut. Whether you want to smile or whether you want to be miserable. It's your choice. We've got the freedom to choose. You can choose to be miserable and cynical and depressed or you can choose to have joy in your life. I want to close with a true story. It's a great story. I want you to listen carefully. So I came across a story. It's in Tim Hansel's book and it points out this particular point that, you know what, we all have a choice in life whether we want to choose joy. And it's a true account of an 82-year-old man who had served as a pastor for over 50 years of his life. In his later years, he struggled with skin cancer and he had several operations, at least 15 operations, and it left him badly scarred. And besides suffering from the pain, he was embarrassed about his appearance. Then one day, he was given a copy of the book, You Gotta Keep Dancing, in which Tim Hansel explains how he almost died in a near-fatal mountain climbing accident. He says and that he would, live, he would have a lifelong experience with chronic intense pain. He says, I told of the day when I realized that the pain would be with me forever. And at that moment, I made a pivotal decision. I knew that it was up to me to choose how I would respond to the pain that I dealt with every day in life. So I chose joy. It says, and after reading a while, the elderly pastor said he put the book down thinking, he's crazy, no one can choose joy. It said, so he gave up on the idea. Then later he read in John 15, 11, that joy is a gift. Jesus said, I want to give you my joy so that your joy may be complete. He thought to himself, it's a gift. Joy is a gift. He didn't know what to do, so he got down on his knees. He didn't know what to say, so he said, okay, Lord, if it's a gift, then I want it. Give it to me. And suddenly, as he described it, this incredible hunk of joy came down from heaven and landed on him. He got smacked in the head with a bucket of joy. I like that, because I saw a cartoon recently where the guy was walking along the beach and there were seagulls all above his head, and he was looking at the seagulls, and he looked it up and just said, yeah, why not? Everybody else does. Anyway. He wrote, he said, I was so overwhelmed, it was like the joy talked about in Peter, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I didn't know what to say, so I said, give it to me, Lord, and give me some more of it. He said, and before he knew it, he was dancing around the house. He felt so joyful that he actually felt he was born again, again, and again. And this astonishing change happened at the age of, listen to me, and this is why I've got hope, and this is what I'm so grateful for. It happened in this man's life at the age of 82. I know it was a couple years earlier in your life, I mean, but, you know, listen to this. I mean, at the age of 82, so he just had to get out. There was so much joy, couldn't stay cooped up. He went to a local fast food restaurant. He got a burger. A lady saw how happy he was, and she asked him, how are you doing? He said, man, I'm doing wonderful. She said, is it your birthday? He said, no, honey, it's even better than that. He said, it's your anniversary? He said, no, it's better than that. She said, well, then what is it? She was all excited. She couldn't wait to hear, and he said, it's the joy of Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? She shrugged her shoulders and said, no, I've got to work on Sundays. 
I was like, can you believe that? I mean, it's hilarious when you think about it. We live in a world like that. Nah, I don't want to hear about that. Tell me you're joyful because you found some new diet formula. Tell me you're joyful because you found some way that your hair grows again. Tell me you're joyful that, you know, you just tell me you're joyful for anything other than the fact that you got joy in your life because, you know what, you're forgiven of your sins and you know that when you die you're going to heaven you've got abundant life and there's nothing in this world that's going to get you down because, you know what, if you stay here, that's okay and if you go there, that's even better. No one wants to hear that. They want to hear, you know what, I sure hope when I, you know, I hope when I die, I hope I've done enough good things and I hope I get to heaven and, and, and I hope and I hope. Hey, you don't have to hope. You don't have to guess. You can know. Man, all you got to do is say, Lord, I didn't know it was this good. I want you to forgive me, and I believe Jesus died for me. Amen and a prayer. You can do that in your seat. You don't have to come up front. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to make a big deal. In the quietness of your heart, ask him to forgive you and believe in him. And you know what he said to Martha? You believe that, you'll live again. You'll live forever. It doesn't get any better than that. Folks, let me tell you something. You know, you have a choice. You can choose joy, or you can choose to be miserable. And I don't know about you, I've chosen misery at certain times in my life, and joy is a whole lot better. And if you don't know how to choose it, then you come back next week, because we're going to learn how to be joyful. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. God, I just pray that each one of us has an assurance in our own heart of our relationship with you, that you've got a purpose and a plan for our life. For those who are here, that God, that, that it's an answer to prayer. For those who listen on tape, it's an answer to prayer. For those who would even seek out any information about who you are, that's an answer to prayer. God, you tell us for those who call upon you that will never be disappointed. And I just pray for those who have been confused about all the jargon and the phraseology and you know, the stereotype we see on TV and in the paper about what a Christian or born-again Christian and all this kind of junk that we see, that they would recognize that a Christian simply means one who is in Christ who has put their faith and trust in Jesus for their sins, who believe that he died for them. God, that, that, that they trust in the fact he rose from the dead. And because he's done that, he's demonstrated he's got power to forgive sin and power to conquer death. God, give us the joy that Paul had when he thought about heaven and he knew that he didn't have to work his way to get there, but he could just have it by his position in believing in Christ. God, help us to see that when we think of heaven, we can smile. But when we think of being here still on earth, that we can smile too because you're in control of all things. Help us to see you answer prayer and we can smile. Help us to see that, 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 that you love us and you care for us. Help us to see when we see people united in effort that there's something to smile about there because that's not natural for people to do. We all want our way. We all want our glory. We all want our, our, our name in the headlines. But you say, but if we would just lay those things aside and work together for a common purpose, that we can enjoy that glory as a group of people. And we just thank you for that. And God, I just pray that each one of us as we leave here today would recognize that we have a choice in life. We can choose joy, or we can choose misery. We can choose to smile, or we can choose to frown. But God, I just pray that most of us would recognize the value of a smile. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.